Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Fort Podcast. I am not your host, Chris Powers. My name is Kevin Dahlstrom, and today we're going to turn the tables on Chris. I'm going to interrogate him on a wide range of topics. Now, most of you know Chris from not only this podcast, but also his incredible success in real estate. But today we're not going to talk about real estate, mostly because I don't know anything about real estate. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about the man behind the Twitter account. So with that, I'll just say welcome to your show, Chris. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on here. How's it feel to have the tables turned on you? I think this was such a cool idea. It feels great. And especially with you asking the questions, I know we're going to have a really good time today. Yeah, yeah. So I was saying earlier, you know, we've we've talked a bunch of times, but I actually don't know a lot about your history and about you personally. So I, I can't wait to to dive in. So there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, but I thought we'd start with kind of what I view as a big announcement from you. So we're going to do a big reveal maybe, but you know, you're kind of in the midst of a career transition. So why don't you just fill in the listeners on kind of what's going on in your life and with your work, and then we'll unpack from there. Yeah. Well, uh, as most people know, I have a company uh, that I started um, in college, and that's called Fort Capital, and it's a real estate private equity firm here in Fort Worth. We have uh, almost 27 employees now, and we buy industrial real estate all over Texas. But it, but you know, even further in depth than that is it's been kind of my baby since I was 17 years old. This is any this is all I've ever done. It's all I've ever woken up and dreamt about, and I love it uh, even to this day. I love it like a, a child. Uh, but with that. There are, um, there's just kind of seasons. And about two years ago, I just started having these experiences where, um, and again, I predicate everybody by saying I love this business more than anything. And it's why I've probably made the decision that I have is because I love it and I want to be a good steward to this company. But I started finding myself not enjoying work as much. I found myself. Um, with that, not knowing kind of where to turn to, uh, the things that I had loved about the business were, were things that I was no longer doing anymore. Um, we had hired this wonderful team and, and they were doing those things. And, you know, I just started asking a lot of questions about, you know, what is my place in this business? And early on, I shouldn't even give myself that much credit to say I was asking questions I was I had no idea why I was unsatisfied. I was finding things to work on and um you know my idea of what a great CEO might do when they were bored was hey I'll just go pop into somebody's meeting and like listen to what they're up to. That that seems like something that that might be good for me to do. And really what I, what what uh Harvard Business School calls it is the founder dilemma. I had started this. It was my baby. Uh for a long time I did everything. And then as time went on, we hired this great team. And so like two years ago, I started reading um, a lot more on kind of Buffett. And not that my goal is to be Warren Buffett from the financial perspective. In fact, like I would never want $100 billion. Um, <laughs> but his ability to delegate uh, created this whole new life perspective for me. Was this guy that, you know, 
his character is that he sits on his ass and eats peanut brittle and owns, you know, a, a trillion dollars worth of companies and plays bridge all day with Bill Gates and somehow manages to find time to do all this other stuff that he wants to do. And but at the core of that is really what they call it at Berkshire is like the uh, the web of deserved trust that they've created. And you, I just realized that the, the real genius of him was that he was able to delegate and delegate well and trust people and give them room to run. And you've seen that manifest itself at Berkshire, but you've seen it manifest itself in lots of other companies. Um, you know, when you look at someone that has what you would call a lot going on, and you wonder well, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. How could they possibly be doing all this stuff? They're really just masters of delegation. They've put really good people around them. They've given them responsibility and then they've trusted them with that responsibility. So I decided that, and kind of over those two years, I really decided a lot of the things that I didn't like about work anymore were things that other people loved. And that I started reading a lot on this quote unquote founder dilemma and I wrote some stats here, but you know, four in five entrepreneurs are forced to step down as CEO at some point in the life of the business. Like less than 20% of founders actually carry a, like the CEO role throughout the life of the business. It's actually more rare. And I don't think a lot of people know that. I think the expectation was that I would be CEO of this company forever and that anything less than that was almost like a failure. And I certainly felt that way. As I started to read more, I read, oh, wait, no, that that maybe uh, transitioning and, and hiring a CEO and didn't change my ownership in the business. It didn't change how much I cared for the business, but it did give me the ability to delegate a lot of what was um, bogging me down and really give me kind of a new breath of fresh air of what might be my next challenges in life. And so on one end, I'm now the founder and I'm, I'm the executive chairman. Uh, my partner and I say it's a, it's a title change, but not a role change in the short term. But really for the last year and a half, I have not been operating as a day-to-day -day CEO, even though that was my title. And my goal right now with Ford is to be an amazing steward of the company. Again, I still care about it the same I ever have. That's why I've made this decision. But the things I'll work on are much bigger picture, um, are much higher level. And really, I'll never be down into the day-to-day -day weeds of the business. And when you, when you talk to people that, that, it's really interesting. People that have gone through it are like, hell yeah, like great move. You, you so awesome. When you talk to people that aren't experienced with a role change like that, they're like, why are you retiring? Like, wh why would you ever do this? And I tell a lot of people that have never been the CEO of a company is like, don't get me wrong. It's an amazing position to be. And I've learned so much from being the CEO, but there's also a lot of stuff about being the CEO. That's not glamorous. Me the media wants to make it glamorous, but it's very lonely at the top. And that doesn't mean because you're some rich guy that that's lonely. It's lonely because you don't realize that when you're CEO, there's very few people that you can truly, truly confide in that, that not that you can't confide that will understand what you're going through. And, you know, you read on Twitter and you read on all these things like, oh, there's this CEO playbook. That is, there's certainly characteristics of things CEOs should do. But I would tell you a big part of the job is not something that you're ever really, um, if you grow up in like a startup like I did, I was never trained on what I needed to be doing. There was no succession planning. I never got to watch anybody do it. And you realize that a lot of people do it differently. Uh, that's why some businesses are more successful than others. But while there's common characteristics of a CEO, it's a very 
kind of learn as you go playbook. And we, I just realized this is a long way to answer your question. Uh, that there were better folks cut out to be the day-to-day CEO of our business because we're now becoming uh, what I would call more of a boring business. And that's a good thing, meaning the team's here, they're kicking ass, we're doing the same things every day, incrementally trying to get better. And right now it's all about focus and consistency. And what you usually find in the founder type is it's harder for them to stay focused as things get more, quote unquote, boring. The consistency of the business It's not as challenging as it used to be. And so they move on. They go start another company. They just move into a different role. But I want to get out of the way of my team and let them flourish and be a steward to the business in a different way. And that's why I chose to make this decision. And I also want to free up time to accomplish a few other things in life, some of which I know I want to do and some of which I just have this deep down gut feeling inside there's a calling for me and I need to give myself the opportunity and time to be able to swing at that pitch if it comes. And I've never had that time before. So moving to this role set me up for a couple of years of kind of being able to observe and kind of piddle around the world and find something. Wow. I literally just got chills listening to that because there's so much I want to unpack from that. (laughs) Let's do it. Uh, So, you know, this is, it's such a fascinating discussion to me because this is a unique situation that not many people get to experience and it doesn't get talked about a lot is folks like yourself who have had, who've been CEO, have had huge success, you know, knowing when it's time to step off the train. And so first of all, kudos to you for being self-aware enough to recognize that. I mean, I think a lot of founders probably outstay their welcome. And that's why you said four out of five, I think, end up getting pushed out. Yep. You know, so you stepped off stage while the audience was still applauding, which, you know, kudos, kudos to you. And, and also you recognized that the the real product that you've built is the company, right? It's, you know, scaling yourself is the ultimate task for a founder. It's important to mention here that you're super young. You're, if I remember correctly, you're 33. Yeah, I'm 34. Yes. So first of all, um, I hate you, uh, but, but, you know, you've been on you a too. hard burn that, yeah, yeah, you've been on a hard burn for a long time though. Right. So you started doing this stuff at what age? I started at 17. Yeah. I've been running, yeah, so, I've been running fast for a long time. That's right. That's right. You've been running fast for a long time. So, so, so kudos to you. So I guess my first question is, you know, do you really, do you think of yourself as a zero to one guy? Um, because that, that's usually like, that's a very vastly simplified way that some people think about it is like, you have your your zero to one guys, then you have your your guys that come on and scale and run things. And and give me a little more clarification on the zero to one. I've read the yeah, book. Zero but what to does one that mean is to like you? you know ground floor. So like the zero to one guys are the guys that come into a startup and they're you're doing everything from they're on their knees, you know, setting up the the wireless router to you know setting up the initial business entities to getting the first customers and so on. Like the true sort of start you know start the business guys. And you've obviously stayed with the company well beyond that. But, you know, you said a couple of things at the end, like, you know, it's kind of a disservice to the company long term for you to be there because you're not necessarily the, 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 the guy for the, what you called the boring business, right? Yeah. And, and even from, your, from an LP's perspective, LPs like, like businesses like yours to be boring, right? They're not looking for, for a CEO who likes to chase shiny objects. And so... I'm just kind of thinking, you're trying to frame out how you think about yourself and your skill set, because that's obviously something you've searched your soul on a lot during this process. 
Yeah, I think, and 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 one of the things I know we'll talk about is maybe some of the you know superpowers or kryptonite, but yeah, I do actually think of myself more as a zero to one than as a somebody that would join like a thousand person company and like help them scale. And it's a question that actually in our podcast, I I still am kicking myself that I didn't ask you, but you told me that you start thriving the larger the company gets and the and the more it's time to scale. But I think I found, again, I I treated even the boring company like it was when I was five to 10 people. And I remember my partner, now Jason, who's CEO, would just tell me things like, why are you doing these things? Like, that is not your job. And it was so, and a lot of that was being young, immature. I have not seen this before. And I often still ask myself, if I would be zero to one, if Kevin, like, let's say you had a business that was 20 people and then I took over as CEO. I just wonder how much of my decision-making came from being wrapped up in this business for so long, emotional decisions like this was my child. And there's a lot of benefits to treating your your business like a like it's your kid. And there's a lot of not benefits to treating your business like it's a kid. At the end of the day, you're making rational decisions. Should we do this? Should we not? What should we focus on? What shouldn't we? And when you think of it as your child, you don't necessarily always make decisions like that. In fact, you could make a lot of irrational decisions because it's your child. If it's too personal, I think it does become a challenge. That works really well when the company is family-sized, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and your employees are your family, but you get to a certain point and it, it can't be that way anymore. The other part is we've never taken on private equity or outside capital. Um, so we've built this business on my my dime and my partner's dime for a long time. And all that we, you know, I've just doubled down year after year after year, and that's proven really well. But let me just say, um, last March when COVID hit, I had a really bad few weeks, like super bad. Um, I remember telling people that I was with at some point, like, I don't know if I'm bankrupt right now. I have no idea like where I stand, but there was nobody else to look to. And I think I made a lot of great decisions last year, and I think I made some that were guided based on my personal fortune within the business that, you know, had a seasoned CEO been in there and it wasn't all about that they weren't maybe selfish decisions. And that was probably my final reminder that either I needed to change the capital structure of the business or I needed to slowly migrate because I will be the biggest champion for this company. I can bring business in very well, but I it was the final writing on the wall that it might be time to start getting someone that's going to be um, have a different mindset towards the business than myself in place. And really, we're, we're 90 days into the announcement. We're a year and a half into the decision, and it's the best thing I've ever done for the business. And, um, you know, let my ego get out of the way. I would tell you the business is doing better today than it ever has. And I would tell you my day to day influence on the business is less than it's ever been. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I want to just dig in a little bit. You mentioned, you know, you had a oh shit moment uh, a year ago when the pandemic kicked off. Was that due to the unique nature of commercial real estate? You just, all of your net worth is tied up in your portfolio and, just didn't know what that was worth or what would happen to your tenants or what, what, how did that play out? Yeah. When I say I was like, thought I was bankrupt, I mean, there's nuance to that and I'm, and I'm being a little bit lighthearted, but, but I will say this and and I'm not like on one end I'm joking and on another I'm not, but you got to know (laughs) um, where I was coming from in my driver's seat. So when the year started, we had taken a large industrial portfolio to market 
And industrial was hot, don't get me wrong, but the, the pandemic really is what's made it ma- more mainstream and really hot. But we ended the year, we had taken this big portfolio out, we had people bidding on it. I mean, it was a frenzy of bidding. And uh, we ended February and selected a buyer. Or, I'm sorry, we were down to three buyers. And our first call uh, f- to pick the final buyer was the week of COVID. And so after this three-month marketing process where we thought we were going to do really well and you know everything was moving quick, we go to get on our final buyer calls. And these people had been engaged for four months. I mean, multiple rounds of bidding, lots of trips into town to look at the portfolio. I mean, the whole deal. Uh, two groups didn't even take the call. And one group took it and said, if you give it to us, we're going to wait 90 days. And so you're like, flying down the street at a million miles an hour. Everybody's having fun. And then that was like reminder number one. And by the end of March, you're starting to read all the headlines. Don't pay your landlord. Um, You know, PPP hadn't been announced yet. And so it was such a stark change in momentum over a two to three week period. And a lot of that was just because we had chosen to sell this portfolio. And so we just had so many things come to a grinding halt and then the narrative, which I just never thought I would believe I would read that article, which is don't pay your landlord. And at that point, no banks had been given advice that they could relieve. I've learned a ton in hindsight, but there, I tell people there was a two-week or three-week period where I was just scared shitless. And I think there was a lot of people that were. I was talking to CEOs and entrepreneurs all over and whether they were telling everybody around them that they were scared, they, they we were having very kind of personal conversations. And so for anybody that, you know, was in that position that hasn't admitted that they were, you know, scared, it's okay to do it. And by being vulnerable at that time, I actually got some of the best advice I've ever been given. When you start every phone call, like you know it all and you're confident, people don't ever really have anything to share with you. When you get on a call and you're like, I'm scared out of my ass. I've been doing this 15 years. I have no idea what's going on. You know, this was that first week of COVID. People, one, you realize nobody else knows what's going on. Two, you can talk to people that have been through downturns or other things, but um, it was probably the best thing I did during that time was vulnerable. And you know, here we are a year later. I was couldn't have been more wrong about what the future was going to uh, bring us, but it was a learning experience. And again, I just think a lot of decisions I made. I made a lot of great decisions, and I'm not patting myself on the back, but I just made some that I still will always look back on and say. You know, that's a learning experience. I wish I hadn't done that. And a lot of it was driven by that kind of founder mentality um, that's healthy in a lot of circumstances, but gets less less healthy over time. Yeah, I think, you know, as you said, there was a lot of people who were scared during that that time. I mean, it was truly unprecedented. I mean, even the the 0809 financial crisis was was nothing nothing like this. You know, I do some work in Hawaii and there was some decent sized businesses in Hawaii that over a course of three months, lost 90% of their revenue. You know, what do you do if you're the CEO? Like just managing that is is uh, nearly impossible. And it becomes, you go from thriving to literally fighting for your life to survive. So it's unbelievable. In, insane times. It was um, insane. W- one more question looking backward, and then I want to talk a little bit about the, you know, the future. So uh, I think I may have told you this before that for me, I made a big life change a few years ago and moved my family to Boulder and kind of changed my career around. And at the time, I'd been working for this big public company in Texas. And for me, there was a very clear, specific moment. I was sitting in a board meeting 
And I looked around the table and realized, you know, what the hell am I doing here? Like, this is, I, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow type thing. <laughs> was, was there a specific moment or an event for you that was kind of the trigger or that, that was the catalyst for, for making this change? Or was it just more of a slow process? So um, it, was a, it was a series of events. So one, I joined a group called YPO, which I know you're familiar with. Um, and just, I just could, just observing a lot of people and just seeing, you know, how careers had taken off and where things were getting dicey, even amongst the people I knew in YPO. There was a couple decisions, again, kind of made at the company. Nothing like if I were to tell it on the podcast, which I I'm not going to it because it's, um, you know, private things. Uh, but just things that I should, that were just definitely emotional decisions. And then really, I started, um, I took something called, I started taking a lot of personality tests because I kept saying, like, I don't like being in meetings all day and, and I'm not a good manager of people. I'm a, I think I'm a good leader. I'm a terrible manager. And that, instead of going like, hey, I'm just not good at managing, like, I'll just do other things. I looked at that, like most entrepreneurs or founders do, is like, no, I'm going to be a great manager. And when you take all these personality tests and talk to these people and like the writings on the wall that I'll never be a great manager... Um, because it's not how I'm wired. It's not how I'm built. I started having some really interesting like thoughts, which was like, oh my gosh, here's what everything says I'm good at. And here are all the things I'm never going to be good at. And in order for the CEO of what the company needs now to move this company to the next phase, I'm not going to be that person. And then you go through the like, I'm a failure. This is on me. And the more you research, you go, no, this is like the perfect opportunity to parachute out. In fact, it's a great thing for the business. It's a great thing for our LPs. It's a great thing for our team. But there wasn't like a moment. It was a lot. I spent two years talking to everybody. And if there was one moment I could... Andrew Wilkinson, who's on podcasts, and I, and I talk about him a lot, and he, I've told him this but he just had a profound impact on me. He was somebody that was more my age. It wasn't like a Warren Buffett who's 90 and has this unattainable business. But Andrews was a lot a lot more of a story that I could relate to. And I just listened to a lot of the stuff he had written and his podcast he had been on. And he would just say thing after thing that was like, oh my gosh, that's me. I hate sitting in meetings. I don't like day-to-day -day management. And that's okay. And he kind of helped also give me some confidence and, um, you know, uh, wisdom that uh, it was okay to do what I wanted to do. And then from there, I talked to my partner about it. And I was like, we need to come up with a plan. And we spent 18 months behind the scenes. We hired a coach. We met with people that had done it before. We, we figured out great incentive structures. And we spent about a year to a year and a half being really thoughtful about the transition to, so that the time that it came, it wasn't going to surprise many people in, internally. And, um, you know, everything had been kind of teed up. And like I said, it's not like I vanished from the business. I still office there every day. I, there's still certain things that I'll be involved in. But the tendency as we move forward will be less and less, not more and more. I think you brought up something that I, I could not agree with more, which is this notion of like, finally embracing who you are rather than beating yourself up about it. And I'll tell you, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you. And, you know, back when I started my career in the mid nineties, I, there was kind of a one size fits all career success model. And I, I beat myself up, up a lot 
for not fitting into that mold. I was a terrible grinder, like you, good good leader, probably not a great great manager, not a details person. And I was like, what's wrong with me? And none of this stuff existed back then. You know, Twitter's been an incredible resource to find. Oh, there are other people out there like me. You mentioned personality tests. I'm curious um, if you've done the Enneagram. Oh yeah, I'm a yeah. uh, you I'm an, an eight wing seven. Yeah, so you're exactly the same as me. No, no <laughs> surprise. But but what's amazing about the Enneagram in particular, I like it because it's really simple. What it says is basically, look, there's a healthy and an unhealthy version of every personality type, and we're wired the way we're wired. And I will say, even in my marriage, it's been super powerful to understand that my wife is just fundamentally wired differently than me. And so she's not trying to be <laughs> difficult when we have these disagreements. It's we're just we see the world differently. And so it's su- it's been super liberating for for me personally to to just kind of be able to say okay there's nothing wrong with me embrace who you are dude i looked at life for so long like everybody must see the world how i see it and and i was always like it never occurred to me why somebody wouldn't want to start a business or wouldn't want to and what you realize through the enneagram is there's lots of different types of people that all have um, different core values and things that make them tick. And without all those people, the world would blow up. You need them all for the world to function. I mean, if the world was filled with a bunch of guys like you and I, we'd blow this place up, you know, a, a year from now. People, there need to be people that offset people's strengths. And if somebody's listening to this, that's never taken a personality test. The Enneagram might be the easiest one to go take online for 10 bucks. But I think they're incredible with technology today and science and you know, AI and all these things, they're very, very smart. Are they 100% accurate all the time? No, but are they 95 to 99? I would say yes, because I've taken five or six and they all pop out the same results. And when you, when I'm having them read back to me, I'm just like, oh yeah, that's me. Yep, that's me. Yep, I don't like that. Yep. Da, 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 da. So It's such a powerful tool. And, and I think it's still, I mean, some businesses use some of the personality tools, but I still think it's underutilized in a, in a massive way in terms of even teams being able to work together effectively. And you were joking about, you know, if we were all like Enneagram eights, what would the world look, look like? I, I always joke, and it's actually not even a joke. You know, I've been doing a lot of work for the past few years in larger companies. And I tell them if they put me in charge of operations, we'd be out of business in six months. <laughs> and it's, it's not, it's, it's kind of true actually. Yep. Uh, but, but, you know, we're wired to, to challenge things and we're wired to innovate and, and create, create the new. So, you need you need all types, right? All right, let's let's shift gears a little bit and um, start talking about the future. So um, you're at a you know this is an interesting pivot point in your life, and I'm sure you're, you've done a lot of soul searching, continue to do so. How are you thinking about what's next for you? I mean, you've mentioned to me before that you're really enjoying this podcast and you, you do a fantastic job with it. Does that play into your future? And, and you said that some of it's you know an unknown, and you're okay with that. So talk to me a little bit about where do you go from here? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think about it uh, pretty much 24-7 right now <laughs> in, in, in a good way. So I'm in a really fortunate position. Look, I have, I've been blessed with my business more than I could ever have dreamt of at this point in my life. You know, I'm married and have two healthy children that are kicking ass and they're in four and two. So that whole season of life is opening up. You mentioned the podcast, which has been 
it's so fun. I just love doing it. And I didn't start it with any ambitions. I still don't fully know what my ambitions are, but I will just tell you how it's impacted me and why I'm going to continue pouring more resources into it and working with it. But I, one, I like, look, I'm sitting here talking to you right now. We're having this conversation recorded and somebody's going to be impacted by this conversation. That's a really cool feeling. The amount of interesting introductions I've had, um, the amount of doors that have opened, the selfishly, the amount I've learned. If I want to go learn something now, you know, one thing I could do is go read an article or listen to a podcast. Or I could just go get an expert on that topic, have them on, and I'll ask them all the questions I want answered. And so it has all these interesting dynamics. You get to meet people. It's been incredibly positive on Fort Capital. The amount of new investors that we've brought on, the, the, we've done deals from people that listen to the podcast. We've helped people get jobs. We, it's helped us recruiting. It's had all these other aspects. And it's really interesting. So My goal is for the next two years to continue pouring a lot of resources into it. My goal with it is not to make it some super profitable part of my life. If that's what happens, great, but I'm not in it for the money. Um, Again, I'm fortunate that I can grow this thing and build it. It will will monetize itself. Don't get me wrong. Um, But it's not like I'm, you know, I have nothing else to fall back on. I just hired an assistant who will just work for me full-time, so she will not work at Fort Capital. Um, She and I are going to be a team, and she is taking on everything outside of Fort Capital that's in my life, which is the podcast, which is I have a lot of kind of third-party investments and stuff that I do outside of Fort. She'll help me on initiatives that I want to bring into Fort, but I'll bake them kind of outside and with her guidance. And I'm really looking forward to working with with her. Uh, I've never had somebody just dedicated to me. And I think that will help uh, open up a lot of time. And then really what the future holds, I've been so geared my whole life to, to... I didn't want to take the approach that in order for me to transition at Fort, I already had to have something teed up. I'm really kind of giving myself, I say two years, but it could be five years. More than likely, it'll probably be less than two years, but I'm just going to kind of wander and piddle. And there's lots of things I'm interested in. There's things that I know I have leverage in, but I'm not making any dis, you know, big calls yet. And until something's so captivating to me that I just can't stop thinking about it, I'm just going to keep being a great steward to Fort Capital, building the podcast. But my eyes and ears are open. I'm, I'm open to the next challenge, whatever that may be. And it'll be in business of some sort. And again, I have lots of ideas that I know we're going to talk more about at our, our retreat we're having together uh, in a couple of weeks. But I'll say this, I've done enough now to know I don't want to stray too far from the core of Fort Capital, meaning I wouldn't go start. I, w- I don't want to go start building rockets. I have no leverage there. I have no experience, no knowledge. That puts me back at square one. Not smart enough. No, not smart enough. Not None of that. <laughs> I want to leverage everything I know from the real estate industry, which leaves the still leaves a lot of options, but I'm not going to get into anything new that I'm not starting with a uh, competitive advantage in. Yeah. I think a lot of, uh, a point that a lot of people miss about money is that the point of making money is not that you don't work because we need work, right? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's part of the human experience is to be challenged and, and have, you know, face adversity, but money does give you freedom to, to choose your, your projects. And 
you know, I can speak for myself and, you know, even though you're a lot younger, you're super experienced in business. The older I get, the more important it is for me to, to mentor and to share. And that's, that's, I think many of us have found that Twitter has been an, an incredible outlet for that. Your podcast is an incredible outlet for that. And so I applaud you for kind of going into this with an open, open heart and mind, not knowing what's next. I have a feeling it'll probably happen a lot faster than two years. In fact, when you, we're going to talk about you visiting, uh, visiting me here in Boulder in a couple of weeks, it's, that's probably going to be the beginning of something. Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling, uh, but, uh, but you know, this idea of making space for things to happen, you know, a lot of great people in history have talked about that is that you know, this, this idea that of being busy is counter to creating great things in many ways. You've got to create space for things to happen for your, you know, uh, so uh, what was it a quote I saw yesterday about, you know, a lot of the great thoughts happening, happen while you're just looking out of a window. Yeah. Right. And not while you're doing something else. So. And, and um, you talk about like how hard it is to to put yourself in a position to just look out of a window now, now that we have iPhones and iPads and something's always, it's very hard to s sit in quiet and just think these days. Like I'm a terrible meditator. I, I do have a morning routine, uh, which is my way of meditating, but I go on like a 90 minute walk every morning. I either do that or I play tennis in the morning, but you're absolutely right. I go on that 90 minute walk and I would tell you people at the business have, have probably thought, it's been a positive thing because you let your mind kind of run and think through things and, you know, get things out that way. By the time I get to the office, I kind of have an idea of, you know, what's going to happen that day and the decisions I want to make that day. But yeah, it's very hard to just like do nothing. And that's, that's helped serve me really well. And it's also been my, my hardest challenges. If I'm not doing something, I'll go break something just so I have a project to work on. Or if, if my calendar is, you know, I only have two things booked that day. I'll go to my assistant and panic and be like, hey, we got to set up a bunch of calls and I need to fill this thing up. The idea of not having, you know, a full calendar freaks me out. At the same time, it's all I want is a is an unbusy day sometimes. Yeah. And I think, you know, I have the same challenge. And for for people who are sort of achievers, you know, the way you make space, I think, is being multidimensional, right? So you talk about your 90-minute walk. So you're doing something but you're also creating space for the ideas to happen. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the work model that we have even today is sort of a relic from the industrial age. I mean, even the, the kind of 40 hour, five day work week, but it doesn't necessarily work that well for, for knowledge work, especially for folks for, you know, for, for Enneagram eights. So it goes back to this question of what is work and what is not work. Yeah, and I would tell you, I've, I've until recently, I've never been able to more distinguish that. For so long, work was my identity, and to a lot of degrees, it still is today. But it's I'm recognizing that, and I'm trying to build a more balanced life. But if you had talked to me five years ago, I thought the goal was for your identity to be your business. I mean, again, you we go back to what you see in the media. These these CEOs of these tech companies and big, they are glorified gods. And I think there's this whole image that, you know, your business is you and you are your business. And I would just tell you, uh, there's a lot of good days when that's the case. And there are probably a lot of bad days, some not that people wouldn't admit, but I know a lot of people that have a lot of money and built huge businesses and they're miserable. Um, they've actually gotten more miserable the, the larger the business has gotten. Yeah. 
in society, you know, there's a lot of sort of toxic stereotypical roles for both men and women, but one of them for men is this idea that work should be your, your whole identity. And, uh, I'd mentioned to you that, you know, I, I've also found that, you know, to go back to the famous quote from Biggie Smalls, you know, mo money, mo problems. I found that that that's been just shocking to me over the years as I've met, you know, dozens, maybe hundreds of extremely wealthy people, billionaires even. And you'd think, oh man, I, I want to emulate them because surely they've found happiness. And I found, like, as you said, more the opposite would not trade, trade places with any of them. Yeah. When you sent that over, the, the thing I wrote down was one, it's, uh, look, I know people that have a lot of money that are super happy. And I know people that have so much money that are uh, not happy at all. And on the mo money, mo problems thing, a buddy and I were, and I were talking about this not too long ago, but you know, when you have a lot of money, you can, you, you buy a lot of stuff and you can, you can have flexibility to kind of put all these things on your plate. You know, you think about the billionaire and he's got all these planes and houses and, uh, you know, he's always on vacation. He's got kids everywhere. He's got all these employees. He's got, you know, he's given away money. Like he has all these things. And at any one point in time, one of those things could be broken or the plane broke or, you know, I have a plumbing leak at my house and, you know, wherever it is, you know, uh, my kids are at school and they're calling back asking for money, da, 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 da. And it's not like they're immune from being pissed off that their plane's broken. Like, yes, they might have the money to fix it and they might have the resources to call somebody and have them do it, but they're still pissed off for the hour. And the more things you stack up in your life where at any given moment, like something could break and your mood could change, it's crazy. And then you think about the person that has relatively nothing that might just get a paycheck and they're just worried, like, I need my paycheck. I'm going to pay rent. I'm going to get groceries. But there's just not catastrophically all these landmines in their way. And who's better off, the person that doesn't have a lot of distraction or the person that does? And I think the people with the more money, more problems, they don't realize that they're just creating this huge distraction in their life by buying all this stuff and joining all these clubs and doing all this thing. And look, we all fall victim to it. I'm not sitting here saying there's not things I want that are material items. But when you see people that are struggling that have a lot of money, it's often they bought all this stuff and they formed all these relationships and everybody's counting on them and it just doesn't work that way. Like there's always something that could be going on uh, wrong and it, and it does. Yeah. Um, a buddy of mine calls it stacking the pancakes. You know, you just keep, you get money, you start stacking the pancakes and stacking the pancakes and before long, it's more than you can, you can eat. Um, and if, you know, let, let's just note here that all of this, it, you know, we're, we're talking from somewhat of a position of privilege, right? So clearly Having money is better than not, but really, the if the goal is happiness, then I think what we're pointing out is, you know, having money certainly doesn't doesn't bring happiness. You know, money can't buy happiness. It's a cliche, and it's a cliche because it's true. And also, the best things in life are free is a cliche, and it's a it's also a cliche because it's true. And for me personally, I've started to study minimalism and have found, you know, I, I think most people have a very mistaken notion of what minimalism is. They envision like a monk-like existence and you're sacrificing self. And it's actually exactly the opposite. What, what minimalism is about is creating space for more of what brings you joy. 
So, so eliminating these things that fundamentally don't bring you joy. A, a quick story just came to mind is, I think I might've told you this before, but uh, when I got my first huge bonus check years ago, I've always been a huge fan of the Porsche 911. Since I was like a teenager, I, I had to have a Porsche 911. So I got this, this huge bonus uh, years ago and I went to the Porsche dealership and bought a, uh, a brand new Porsche 911 twin turbo convertible. And I brought it home and it was in my garage and I'm laying in bed that night, staring at the ceiling. This car's already bringing me stress. I've owned it less than 24 hours. <laughs> it's bringing me more stress than joy. I, I wasn't that kid anymore who wanted the 911. So I literally took it back to the Porsche dealership in the one in, I think it's Park Cities in Dallas. Yeah. And I said, I can't do it, man. And the manager to his credit said, he said, kudos to you, man. You're the first person that's ever done this. And yeah, I realized at that moment for me, you know, less really is more. And so uh, it's a hard lesson to learn though, because it, it is, there's a lot of temptation out there. There is. And especially now going back to kind of social media where you're seeing stuff every day and you're seeing pictures of people driving that 911, you know, all the time. And they only post the photos of, you know, the great times. It's, <laughs> it's very hard to not get distracted and not to want kind of materialistic things. But I think we talked about this. Maybe it was us. But that that concept of the time billionaire. And it's basically, I mean, again, uh, you could take Warren Buffett again. Everybody knows Warren Buffett. He's 90 years old. He has $100 billion. And I guarantee you he would give 99.99% of that all back if he could be 25 years old again. Um, Absolutely. And that's really what he's really saying is I want to experience the experiences and go on the trips again and love my kids again when they were young. That's really what he's saying there. Anybody that wants to be 95 and keep the $100 billion, it's it, it just that's just not the case. Like that will never happen. So this concept of time billionaire, which is make the most of your time, because at the end of the day, that's really all that counts. That's exactly right. Uh, we, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about Twitter. And I, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your personal experience with Twitter, because it seemed like a lot of us kind of got serious about it at the same time, you know, kind of a little bit before the pandemic, maybe. Before I ask you to kind of tell me how that's influenced your life, I'm going to tell you a funny story. So, you know, we, we mentioned that, you know, Chris is coming to visit me in Boulder and we're going to, we're going to do some brainstorming and, and create a world domination plan in a couple of weeks. But I, I mentioned to my wife, Hey, this guy, Chris Powers is coming to visit. And she's like, Oh, I've never heard that name. How did you, how did you meet him? I was like, Oh, we met him on, I met him on Twitter. And, you know, my wife, God bless her, is not a social media person. So that, that just set off a lot. She's like, what are you talking about? Like, how do you know this guy's not a serial murderer? Like, you don't know anything about it. Like, but, but you know, what, what she didn't realize because she's just not on social is how incredibly special these communities have become. And in some ways, you know, the friends I've made personally on, on Twitter are in some ways closer than the folks who, you know, I, I met the traditional way, if you will. So, so talk a little bit about your journey and kind of how it's impacted your life and maybe even played into your, your kind of path forward. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Um, I, I've, I'm starting to meet some of my Twitter friends in person for the first time, and it's a it's a really cool experience. And even before Twitter, I used to like when I went to college or when I was living in El Paso or Fort Worth. It always was just kind of weird to me that your friends are the people that are closest to you proximity, like geographically. Like you're going to be good friends with somebody that lives a mile from you because you can interact with them often. 
And Twitter's kind of changed that. Like, I, you don't have to be, in, in our case, you're not a mile away from me. I've probably talked to you more over the last few months than I've talked to some of my great friends. And that's not a knock on my great friends. It's more just painting the picture of geographical boundaries have been taken down because of the internet. And I think Twitter's created, in my opinion, the best forum for having cool experiences with people that's different from Instagram or Snapchat or, or Facebook or LinkedIn. And so, you know, Brent Bishore, who uh, you, we all probably know from Twitter, he's the one that encouraged me probably two or three years ago, probably two years ago to get active. I had been a observer for a while and um, started to get more active with it. And then Moses Kagan, you know, this real estate community started blossoming and, you know, it's been one of the most incredible things. I've met so many cool people. I've learned a ton. It's opened a lot of doors. Um, it's addicting. And the, there's a lot of cons to the addiction. Pulling out your phone 50 times a day to check or pulling out your phone, <laughs> checking, putting your phone back in your pocket and 30 seconds later, pulling it back out, not knowingly. Um, we all do that. Uh, what are you I talking use, about? <laughs> I use an app called Opal, which helps me uh, stay a little more uh, grounded. Um, I, we've met hundreds of new investors. We've done deals, um, but I've learned a ton. And then I've also really gotten good at blocking and muting. So Twitter can be a dark place if you let it. And I have so many words muted and some people might say, well, oh, you're just there to, to read what you want to read. And, and that's not the case. But for the people that are really naysayers on Twitter, they find it to be very negative. It's where people go and shout uh, into a big echo chamber. And there's ways to protect yourself from that. I think one of the biggest hacks I've recently done is uh, Twitter thinks I'm from Antigua. And when you're from Antigua, they pull news from Antigua. And guess what? There is no news in Antigua. And so I don't get this kind of world is on fire news channel every day. And that's been incredible. But in all seriousness, I've met so many cool people. Um, I meet people that I disagree with, which is very cool. Um, I think people that take Twitter seriously, for a long time, I almost felt guilty. Why would I spend an hour or two a day or three on Twitter? And I think Moses said it really well the other day. He said, often it's the best use of my time. And I would agree with him. I have, again, here we are sitting here. I would say so many things going on in my life right now. I've learned from Twitter or it's sharpening me. And I think, and I don't know exactly know how to frame this, but I think you and I will be sitting here five years from now and realize that this whole shift of how people did business and got to know each other and did things is happening right now. And it'll be very common knowledge five years from now. But the people that are in it day to day, like you and I are, still feel like it's this experiment. But it's, you know, my wife often asks me, like, and I try and imagine what I get off Twitter right now is like, hell no, I wouldn't get off Twitter. Can I set better boundaries? Maybe. <laughs> but work looks different. It, it feels like, uh, it does feel like a, a little secret that we know that the world hasn't found out about yet. And what's interesting is, I kind of came into Twitter through real estate Twitter, even though I'm not a real estate guy, because I just aligned with kind of the value system that you and a lot of the guys you mentioned have and kind of grew my, my you know, um, network from there. And, you know, like a lot of us say, it's, it's life-changing and it is work. It's in many ways the most important work. And I'll say for me, it's, it's gotten me into the discipline of 
writing on a daily basis, which you know really helps clarify my thinking. And frankly, my routine in the morning, and I'm going to ask you about your routine here in just a second. That's the next question. But you know, of getting up before anybody else, um, spending some time on Twitter, and then writing with my morning coffee, it has literally changed my life. I'm in a good mood every day because of it. You know, and I'm a I'm a guy. I'm a creative, you know, oriented guy, and I need inspiration to be, you know, uh, in a in a sunny mood. And I get it every single day from Twitter. So it's changed lives in so many ways. So w- with that, you know, let's let's talk about your your routines, not just your morning routine, but what are the things that that you kind of hold dear in your daily life? You mentioned your 90 minute walk, which that, that's obviously an amazing r- routine to have. Are there other habits or routines that that you have that you've adopted over the years that you find you know super valuable? And I'm going to answer that, but I wanted to tie one thing to finish that other conversation, and then I'll get into that. You know, when you look at the future, the future is always happening now. Um, That's one thing I've learned, and the things that you are starting to hear more and more, like when we were hearing about Bitcoin six or seven years ago. The things that the future is here and you hear about them little by little. But if you were to go back to the Twitter conversation, our last president before Biden was virtually elected because of Twitter. It was his megaphone to the world. Uh, we now have a gentleman by the name of Elon Musk that can move a, a market by tens of billions of dollars with a single tweet. And so to sit here and say, okay, that's that that those are probably two of the most famous people on Twitter, and they're 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 changing the world by sending out 280 characters. It would be crazy to not think that maybe five, 10 years from now, uh, we will realize that maybe Twitter has a lot more power than it has. And, and a lot of people might say, well, Twitter's been around for a long time. And you and I can both agree on this. I think Twitter's having its own renaissance. It's it's re- learning who it is. We know there's so much value to be tapped. And I think the best of Twitter is yet to come. And so I know we're moving to routines, but I just thought I think about Twitter in that same vein of like, there's just too many powerful things that are being talked about and happening on Twitter for it not to have this amazing next 10 years, whatever that looks like. As far as routine, Chris, go ahead. Well, let me just pause you there before we move on and say, I uh, obviously agree with you. Unfortunately, though, you know, Twitter is my single largest stock holding. <laughs> and as a, as a stock and as a company, it's just underperformed. And I often wonder if Twitter management even knows what they have on their hands. That's a great question. I think Jack Dorsey needs to go. Um, he's been phenomenal, but he's, he's running two different businesses. Um, I just... Here's the one thing I really don't know, and not that a big conspiracy guy or anything, but like, I just feel like the government somehow has some influence on what Twitter is capable of doing because the business decisions are so obvious and they're not doing them and the board's not kicking them off. They're not moving the CEO out. It's, it's very weird. And you go look again, the one thing I didn't like about Twitter, if you go to the like what's trending tab every day. It's just a freaking hellhole of bad news. I mean, it's very rarely anything good. And I get they got to sell ads and they want clicks, but man, there's so much better ways to run that company that are so obvious to so many people. And the fact that they just, one, totally don't do it. And two, there's not some activist or somebody making stuff happen. 
just makes me feel like they're playing by a different set of rules that maybe we don't all know about. And maybe that's just me getting way too in front of my skis, but it just seems way too obvious. I often wonder, and it's it's sort of a joke, but not really, is like Jack Dorsey's the CEO of two companies. Is Does he think of like Twitter as the nonprofit and Square as the for-profit? Um, because to your point about all that wasted real estate on the right side, there's so many genius posts that I see every day that that would would spark amazing conversations, positive conversations. Let, let, let's move on because I know we're, we're going long. We could we could continue this for hours, uh, <laughs> no, no problem. But t- talk quickly about your routines, and then I want to move into one final topic, which is you know your trip to Boulder. I kind of want to build in public a little bit and talk about what we're going to do. So, guy named Pete Chambers, who I've talked about, I've had him on the podcast. Pete has had a profound impact on me. Um, but just a lot of the things that he would was telling me really early on was just like, you have to be intentional about the things that are important to you and creating routines out of those things are going to have to happen. Cause I think everybody in life has good, in, for the most part, most humans have good intentions. Uh, there's obviously people on either end of the barbell that are crazy, but I think everybody wakes up generally and wants to do their best. I just don't think some people are fortunate enough to be given people in their life that will tell them, do these things now so you don't regret this later. And I think one of the biggest things for me, because my natural tendency is to work 80 to 100 hours a week, totally neglect everybody around me. And not because I want to neglect everybody around me, because that's what you do. You make a career and you do all this cool stuff. And then later in life, I'll meet my kids and my wife and we'll have a, you know, we'll do all this. We'll travel. You hear that all the time. I want to retire and travel. But what he would teach me is like, there's so many people that get to the second half of their life that are like, they burnt all their relationships in their life, whether that's family, friends, they have, they've had all this success that they thought was the most important thing at the time. And again, they didn't have bad intentions while they were doing it. They just came to find out later in life that you know, they had regretted letting a lot of things go by the wayside. And I'm recovering from that. I There were years where I didn't hang out with my friends very much. Um, I was not probably the best husband, um, mainly because I just was working all the time. But if you had asked me, like, are you doing the right thing right now? I'd have been like, fuck, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. I'm working my butt off every day. I'm building this company. I'm whatever. And so back to the routine question, he said, well, like, there's nothing more that your two girls are going to want than to uh, to get to know you. They don't care about how much money you make. I promise you, they don't care about how much money you make. They don't care about the next building you buy. They don't care about any of that. If they go and tell their kids, their friends at school about you, all they're going to talk about is whether they know you or don't know you. And so one routine is I take my kids to school every single day that I'm in town. It's on my calendar. I'm not going to miss it. And I put my kids to bed at night, every night that I'm in town. So I start the day with them. I end the day with them. That for me is my, you know, 60 to 90 minutes a day of kind of close time. Anything more than that's a bonus, but at least I can plan for that. And it's on my calendar. And I just know that as many days as I get home late from work or something, I, you know, the last thing I want to do is go through a 30 minute bedtime routine. I just know it's going to be one of those things later in life that I'm not going to regret that I did. Um, so that's one routine. Um, I, I walk in the morning. That's kind of my self routine. Uh, my wife and I are pretty good about it. If she's listening to this, she'll probably say it's time, uh, that we, 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 I think we missed last week, but we try and go out to dinner once a week. 
you know, I'm at that stage with a four-year-old and a two-year-old, you know, I hate to say it, but that's what you learn a lot about marriages is it becomes about the kids and all this other stuff and trying to find time to, you know, focus on each other. And you realize that even one or two hours of focusing on each other can make a whole week better as opposed to no focus, but lots of tiny little interactions. Yeah, I'd say those are kind of my biggest things that I do like weekly. If there's something deeper, maybe at work that you would want to go to work routines, but those are three of the things. And then church, we go, we try and go to church on Sunday. That's, that's a thing. So I'm not a routine guy by nature. I like to have lots of things going on and be sporadic, but I will tell you that the things that I've like kept consistent it's just like everything, it kind of compounds. The more, if you have a routine that you get better at something, whatever that better might be, um, and you can kind of count on it. Isn't it funny how everything comes down to compounding in life? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and by the way, my I have two girls like you, and they're 14 and 16, and I'll tell you, it only gets better. Um, you're going to enjoy, as I do, now I'm working on projects with my, my kids, and they each like different things, and it is so much fun. And you know, when kids are toddlers, it feels like an investment. You know, you're making the investment in them to spend time. But now it's just, it's pure joy. It's actually the investment gets returned. So I would tell you this and and you should do it. And anybody that's listening and this, I'll never forget this. And I've done it twice through YPO. Actually, Pete was in my forum for a while. He's the one that did this activity with us. But he said, one of our, uh, we were going on a retreat and he sent this out like the week before And we were going to come and he said, okay, here's the exercise. You are at your 80th birthday and you're in this room filled with your loved ones, your friends, and your coworkers. And your kids are going to write a speech about how you impacted their life. Your wife or your spouse is going to write a letter about how you impacted their life. And um, some of your coworkers are going to write a letter. And our job was to write that letter for them. So what are your kids going to tell you at your 80th birthday in this room? And if you're not at a great spot in your life or you've abandoned your children or whatever that may be, one, it gives you an amazing opportunity to go, hey, I need to autocorrect this and start working on it. But I'll tell you, I've, I've, I, you get, I get teary-eyed even thinking about it. You get really choked up writing those letters. What are your kids going to tell you at, at your 80th birthday in front of a room filled with all your loved ones. And if you're sitting there today going, God, I, I'm glad they're not giving that speech today. Hey, it's a great opportunity to write the ship, but it's also a great way wow. to go. You know, I'm going to write the letter and I got to live this out because one day they might actually give you that speech. What an incredible thought experiment. And I, I would challenge all the listeners to, to do that. Yeah. Um, wow. That's well. That's with that. Let's let's move on to the last topic, and okay. uh, and then we'll wrap it up. So you're coming to visit me in in Boulder in a couple of weeks, and this was you know we just kind of did this on a whim because we we like hanging out and and uh, you know we've been kind of joking that we're going to plot out our world domination strategy. What are you looking to get out of that? And I'll 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 go first. You know, just to kind of give you a little time to think about that. But I've been working on something really cool, kind of a stealth company slash project in the digital banking space, which is my domain. And I'm excited just to show you what I'm doing. I think it's going to be a good stimulus for conversation. I think I'm excited to get your feedback. Um, And then I I just want to kind of talk about, you know, the future, like what, where are we both coming from? 
you know, what are some of the possibilities? What are ideas that were, you know, I, I keep a list of, of um, business ideas on my iPhone. Maybe we'll run through some of those, get on the whiteboard, uh, whatever. But, but what are, what are, how are you thinking about this or have you thought about it? What are kind of your objectives? So I, I love this part of the conversation. One, and again, I, you know, we, we've done our episode and people know how I feel about you, but you know, I, I would just start by saying I don't do this very often where I meet somebody that I haven't met in person and I'm willing to travel across the country to go spend two or three days with them. So a lot of that is how much we've connected. So I'm super excited to meet you in person, even though I feel like I know you really well. The second is um, you told me that story about you moving to Boulder and how rock climbing is a huge part of your life. I'm just excited to kind of be in that world. And I think you said we might go like do a, a rock climb. I'm going to do the novice wall, but um, that's interesting to me. But the, <laughs> the the bigger part that we kind of connected on, and it's one of the biggest ideas I I think about still to this day is. So you got to know where I'm coming from, which is uh, real estate, private equity. We raise money from hundreds of investors um, uh, from all different walks of life, high net worth, family offices. Um, some are very knowledgeable about technology. Some still, you know, bring us a briefcase, not a briefcase of cash. They write a check. I'm making a, a bit of a joke, but I've also dealt with a lot of family offices and again, know a lot of folks that have tremendous amounts of wealth. And I know how those family offices run. And then I know kind of the demographic that we've talked about, which is, you know, this subset of the community that has enough money to uh, have administrative burdens and things that they need to get done. And there's never been a great kind of fintech, in my opinion, or you know, software as a service business that has made these people's lives easier. On one end, I don't think these folks even understand the challenges that they have. It's just kind of the state of the industry. But two, I just think there's enormous opportunities to create real value for a vast uh, side of this demographic, which I would call uh, it's like wealthy enough to have issues to deal with and not wealthy enough to have enough money to hire a full staff to deal with them. I look forward to spending a lot of time with you on who are those people? How are they being served? What are all the cool companies being built today to serve them? Where are there still gaps? Obviously, you said what you're building, and I'm looking forward to learning more about that. But you know, it's it's not something that I've like said, okay, I'm going to go full steam on this for a while. Um, but it's something that I still think about every day and I keep inching closer to it. And I don't know what my angle is, but it's something I'm passionate about because I am my own customer in a lot of ways in this. I would be solving problems for myself, but for hundreds of people that I know day to day that invest with us. So that's part of what I want to get yeah, accomplished with um, you. Yeah, we've talked about this at length and we're both very excited as are, you know, some of our friends, you know, Adam and other people have uh, a strong view on this too. And it's one of those, like, as an angel investor, I do a lot of angel investing, and one of my core theses is investing in in founders who feel the unique pain of their the problem they're trying to solve. And you know, for you and I, we see this every day. You know, the 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 quote unquote private banking or wealth management business, in in my view, is just horribly outdated. Doesn't really solve the problems that we have. And furthermore, we want to be actively involved in managing our finances, and so. Um, as someone who comes from financial services and banking, I can't wait. That's that's like you know, 
feasting on porn for me is like <laughs> whiteboarding out a, a, an idea around how to solve this problem. So uh, I'm super excited. This is going to be fun. And, and yes, we are going to rock climb. So I'm going to get, I'm going to follow up with you. You're going to need a few pieces of equipment, by the way, uh, some, some, some climbing shoes and whatnot, but uh, I can promise that your mind will be blown and we'll, we'll post pictures to Twitter. Last question. And this is something I, I ask um, randomly all the time as I'm out and about in public, you know, I ask my barista at the coffee shop or, you know, people at the airport, whatever, um, because I thought I find the answer very revealing. And the, the, the question is simple, which is um, what's one thing you're looking forward to? Oh, that's a great question. And, uh, and while, while you're thinking, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that where this comes from is I've found in my own life that I always like to have a climbing trip on the calendar because um, I always know like by having something to look forward to, you know, life has ups and downs and business goes well and then it doesn't go well and same with family and all and so on. I always find it's like just it, like hope is a powerful thing and just having something to look forward to is just a really powerful psychological thing. So I'm wired this way. So I'm always just super curious if other people think that way and if they have something that they think about. Yeah, that's a great uh, question. And, and and I thought about it in two ways. Like what's one thing maybe in the more immediate short term that I'm looking for and maybe just something in life that I'm looking forward to. Um, and in YPO, we do updates at our forum meetings. And it's uh, the first question that we answer every time is, what's caused you the most energy in the last 30 days and what's depleted your energy the most in the mm. last 30 days? And then the second question is, what's going to cause you the most energy in the next 30 days and what's going to deplete your energy in the next 30 days? And so different framing, but um, you had said a rock climbing trip. I think the thing I'm most looking forward to is we kind of started a tradition where we our family goes to Watercolor, Florida. We rent a house there. And it's very kid friendly. It's, uh, you know, drive, you ride your bikes and golf carts everywhere and go to the beach. Last summer we went, uh, was our first time and I'm like super pumped. So I'm going for two weeks in July. It'll be a great kind of mid-year break. And that's probably the thing on the horizon I'm most looking forward to in the next nice. 30 days. And what am I looking forward to long-term, not business related? I'm really looking forward to, I think my wife and I would both say the same thing is like, I'm just really looking forward to my girls growing up and being a bigger role in their life. Uh, I don't really know what that means, but they're two really smart kids. Um, they're both different and I'm going to have, you know, different relationships with each of them. But that is something that's very exciting to me is kind of growing up with those girls and, you know, whatever that means. Uh, I'm pumped about it. Yeah, I didn't think I'd say that. I wanted two boys my no, whole life. And Palmer and Connor, if you're listening to this, I'm so glad I had two girls. But uh, being a girl dad is something that I think about a lot. It's it's special. Um, you and I have that in that in common. And I will tell you, um, I recently had a health scare, and it, luckily it turned out to be just a scare and and nothing more. But I'll tell you, my immediate thought when I found out about it was uh, how disappointing it would be just to not be able to see my girls grow up. Um, and so I think that's 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 an amazing thing to look forward to, and and probably a a, a great note to end on. This has been fun, man. We could we could do this for like 
six hours, but I think your listeners probably have some tolerance limit for our, our jabbering. <laughs> I thought this was amazing. And and what you just said, I think ending on that comment is like not to end on a, it's a, it's a positive note, but you know, my dad passed away nine years ago. I know there's nobody that would want to be here today to see what's going on in my life and my sister's life and my mom's life. And back to what we were talking about of not kicking things down the road and doing things later in life is like, you don't know when it's over. And um, you know, you just got to frame things of like, I still think you moving to Boulder just to, I think that's just an, a, a remarkable story. So I don't mean to get off topic. I think it's a great way to end this. Um, just enjoy kind of what's going on and keep things in perspective, I guess, is, is the final message. Awesome, man. I think that's, well, just to kind of put a final brushstroke on this, this is, uh, I think that's the reason you and I connected kind of from day one is we sensed that our values were the same, you know, in recognizing that, that, you know, even though we've, we've put a big part of our identity into our business pursuits is that's only one part of, of who we are. And you had even mentioned that, you know, you were afraid that you were kind of, a, your identity was the real estate guy. And I, I told you, when I met you, I didn't think of you that way at all. Maybe because I don't know much about real estate and couldn't understand what you were saying. <laughs> but, but, but I, it was clear to me that there was many dimensions to you and the importance of family. And and you know, you're putting your literally, you're putting your time where your mouth is because you're 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 changing gears and you're going to pursue something different in the future. And that's super super inspiring to me. Um, so 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 I can't wait to see what's in store for you over the next next few years. Well, I appreciate it and. Uh... Thank you for having me on my show to talk with you today. It has been <laughs> the fun. ultimate it's been, pleasure. It's, it's been fun. I don't know if I could do this with regularity like you do, but it's <laughs> been fun to do it once. So thanks a lot, man. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.